Developing a product is different from a business or a company. A product has to mean something to somebody. You have to be doing something that people want. It doesn't matter how great you built it or whatever else. If your product ultimately isn't something that people want, it's, it will fail. On the way back from a party in London, Bridget Harris turned to her business partner and said, I don't think we can do this. That bus ride home was the end of the survey app, but not the end of their product building journey. Bridget and her husband have launched, tested, and shut down many products on their way to creating the wildly successful You Can Book Me service, which is now a $5 million a year business with over 20,000 customers and more than a million users. Her story is one of consistent building, iterating and failing in the hunt for real traction. In this episode of It's Not Over, I talk to Bridget about raising funding, working with your partner, viciously shutting down products with no traction, and building a sustainable lifestyle company. My name is Nick Harrell-Ambus and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. I, as you know, am your host, Nick Harrell-Ambus, and I'm sitting today with Bridget Harris, who has built an incredible business called You Can Book Me, which we are going to dive into. Bridget, welcome and thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Nick. How are you? I am good. Thanks for asking. So why don't we dive right in and tell me what You Can Book Me is and why you started it. So You Can Book Me is an online scheduling tool. People use our product to set up their calendars and publish their availability and take bookings online. Quite a lot of companies use it from everything from the solopreneurs to very large companies who have hundreds of people using the system. It's a SaaS tool, so it's a monthly subscription to get the upgraded features, but we also offer a free version. Okay, awesome. And what made you start this particular business? Well, that's why I'm here to talk about it, Nick, because it's our first business, it's our first company, but it's not our first product. So You Can Book Me is, I think it was about the 10th product that we built. So we've got nobody to blame but ourselves because we have a long history of basically building products and finding multiple ways of seeing them fail. And then You Can Book Me came essentially came up as a winner and so it was that that was experience of it was the experience of understanding product failure that helped us understand about why you can book me was going to be a successful product and then we built a business and a company around it and when you say we who are you referring to so i've got a co-founder keith harris between the two of us we've been together for a very long time we're obviously uh, we're husband and wife but we've also worked together as co-founders on a lot of projects and he's the cto and i'm the ceo I'm interested in this idea that you have of build products, multiple failures, and then whatever sticks works. So did you two just sit down one day and were like, let's do something cool together? I'm business, you're tech, let's build stuff until it sticks. Or how did it kind of evolve into this relationship you have? Well, we started working together before on political projects where Keith did the, basically Keith did development for me, various campaigns and things inside politics that I used to run. So we knew how to work together in terms of the combination of software development, product design, and then execution implementation and sort of what the point is. So we had that before we thought we were going to run a business together. And to be honest, I'm not sure we did sit down and at the very beginning and decide to launch. It wasn't like a co-founder relationship where you know what you're doing and you look for funding and a co-founder and then you get it going. I think that it started very slowly. And this is what I can obviously talk about uh, throughout a number of product 
innovations where I think probably the original assumption was hugely misguided, but the original assumption was it's going to be easy. You can do these things sort of, you can get passive income, if you like, from a a freemium stroke SaaS tool, and it wouldn't involve a business or a company. And it was only actually, well, it was almost 10 years later from our first product that with You Can Book Me, we realized that we needed actual formal leadership. So if you like, I came in as a more formal co-founder later on down the track when we realized that we needed to build a company and a business around the product that had been built. So I suppose that's my that's my main message is there's a, a company, a business and a product are three different things. And you've got to know what, what, what you're actually doing. Yeah, I, that couldn't agree more. And I think it's going to be quite an intriguing journey on how you came to that arrival, because it sounds like you basically spent 10 years building products until something stuck. Is that yeah. kind of the time frame we're in? Yeah, I mean, so the first, so, so, I mean, as a software developer, Keith had been writing programs for other companies, obviously, as a contractor. And I think this was around 2002, 2003, the realization that you could actually build tools that would be available over a web browser. At the time, we didn't have any kind of lexicon for that. So we didn't understand it was software as a service or cloud technology. I mean, even though we understood it was a web application that he would build and would be accessible online and you get an account, you log in and you can access whatever it was. We didn't sort of see that as a, that didn't have a kind of a comparative industry and sector that that, that we would know what we were doing now. At the time, it was like, let's build something and everybody can access it online. And we had actually built quite a few. I mean, I say we in the sense that I'd commissioned Keith to build. So for example, in one of the campaigns that, um, I was involved with Keith built an entire what would now be called a voter contact campaign database. So if you think back in 2008, Obama won the presidential election and and there was a huge amount of uh, suddenly uh, the awareness around the potential for digital campaigning really came to the fore with, with that election, although his predecessors had done a good job as well. So we were doing we were really interested in things like that. We were interested in how we build stuff as products, standalone products to to do a certain thing. And in my case, it was to do with political objectives. But we'd already started that journey in 2003 with a product called Tickboxer, which did survey building tools. So it was exactly like what you probably know now as SurveyMonkey or even just Google Forms. It was essentially very similar to Google Forms. And in fact, it's the advent of tools like Google Forms that made us realize years ago we weren't going to be able to compete, that we had no resources to compete. But I can tell you a bit more about that as we get into the discussion. But this idea of kind of consciously building a product and waiting for it to stick, and then when it didn't stick, thinking, okay, well, we have to abandon that product. That's in some ways what what I've got to share with your with your audience about how what are the things that you need to put into place to understand that journey that you're on because I think that the story of entrepreneurship is quite it's quite evangelical it's always saying you've got to keep going you've just got to double down you've got to work harder faster for longer only winners only the but, but it, yeah it's the winners that tell the story so it's always the winners that tell the story and their story is always I just completely smashed it and so you have to take risks and be evangelical and believe in what you're doing but you also basically have to get a grip on the economic rationale of what you're doing and if fundamentally um, you don't know how you're going to make money from it 
in the end, you've got to understand how you're going to resource it. So for us, the driver became ultimately the fact that we bootstrapped it. We didn't have money to burn on an investment in a tool where we couldn't see a, a fairly strong path to money. Whereas you can book me, as soon as it hit the, the, the web, we started to sell it. We started to get customers. And it's it, like, it's not, I don't think there's any genius involved in that. I think there's just a kind of a question of, is somebody willing to pay for the thing that you're selling? Yes, they are. Good. We'll carry on selling it. Do you have any customers for the thing that you're selling? No. Why not? Because nobody wants it or because I didn't ask anybody whether they wanted it or I designed it wrong or it's broken or it's a bad model or I'm trying to persuade people. And ultimately, have you any prospect of getting customers? I don't think so. In that case, you've just got to close it down. Such an exciting um, topic for me because I don't actually think I've spoken to an entrepreneur who's covered this. And I'm, I'm hoping that this is kind of the angle that you're going at here is you've kind of figured out the model of when to quit or kill. Like, well, yeah, oh, this I mean, didn't we, work. It's yeah. time to walk away. Yeah, we've killed. We, we I did I did a, a, a conference about five, six years ago now in Brighton called it Lifetime Value Conference, mm. where it was a bit of a tongue in cheek dig at the the received wisdom that VCs always have that everybody understands and, and, and repeats, which is that nine out of 10 investments fail or nine out of 10 businesses fail. And there's like this very high fail rate. And of course, you can turn that around and say, well, 90% of VC investments are bad choice. What were they doing putting money into a failed business? But in many ways, I do understand the economics of it. But so, so, so the premise of my talk was, well, we built 10 products and nine did indeed fail and, and, and one, one worked. So that mm. ratio probably does generally apply that you have 10 times more ideas than, than are ever going to work. So I suppose my main point is what works isn't necessarily just based on your own energy and enthusiasm. You can burn yourself out very quickly on the wrong idea. And so yeah. understanding how you quickly identify what your priorities are, because we probably had, I mean, okay, survey, building a survey building tool in 2003 it's absolutely fantastic idea, multi-billion pound idea. But did we have the resources to properly invest in it and push it forward? No. And, and I've got a very good reason why. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube, then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. Let's dive into that. I mean, because what I like is that there's a couple of things on the 2002, three year that I think you've nailed, which is there was no lexicon back then for building yeah. stuff. We just built stuff, which yeah. I love. Right now in 2022, people are so obsessed with labeling what you build and attaching it to this particular that. And we just built stuff. I was there with you at 2002, three. I was just leaving high school and um, was building my first real backed businesses. And like WordPress had just come out that year. It was an exciting yeah. building stuff. So I love that you were like, ah, oh, surveys are a thing because there was no Google surveys. There was no survey monkey. There was no anything. You were just like, people need surveys. So we're going to build it. Yeah. And that's an exciting time to be building stuff. So you did that. And then what happened? So we did that. And well, Keith built it, I should say, but I mean, I work with him on a lot. You can say the... we from here. I think we'll just assume Keith is there in the background well, in a dark I, cave. Like I was one of his 
he had two customers, not customers, he had two users. I was one of his users. Mm. I was working in local government at the time. So I used Tickboxer for building surveys for the work that we were doing in local government. And it was, it felt very revolutionary. It felt fantastic. And it was one of his other clients who also used Tickboxer. So there was nothing wrong with the tool at all. It was a perfectly decent question and answer web form type thing. The day that we decided to close Tickboxer down, having probably spent two or three years on it, I can't remember now. I mean, we had other stuff as well, but probably let's just say for the sake of argument, we started it in 2002 and we closed it down in 2004, something like that. Okay. It was, somebody showed me Wufu. I was at a party in London and somebody showed me and it was just beautiful. It was all in JavaScript or some nice client side application. It was gorgeous. It was, the UI was beautiful. The design was beautiful. And, and its premise was very simple in terms of building web forms. And I just thought, I don't think we're going to do, we can't, we can't compete with this. We can't, hmm. there's no way we know and understand. We don't have enough competence in the area hmm. of design and the, the user experience end. We can do the engineering. Keith can do the engineering. We can do the functionality. I can tell him what we need. But in terms of packaging up as a product that was going to be widely used, we didn't have it. And I think that's because, and I think this would be my first learning point, that's really understanding the product that you're building. So it has to be, you have to be able to describe your product end to end. So you can, you essentially have to be able to say what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. And as you describe your end to end boundaries within those boundaries, it has to be enough. Now, I think that with web forms, you've got everything from what's, if you effectively think about a name and address form, like, like a survey, what's your name? What's your address? What's your postcode? Press submit. What's your email address? So you've got web forms that you could embed into people's websites or in any other way, kind of capture some data and stick it into a database somewhere. But you've also got at the other end, quantitative survey results where you're trying to actually validate data. You're trying to add numbers to it and you're supposed to, you, you want to create things. So, so for, for just for survey building, you're trying to, you've got an incredibly wide range, everything from a name and address form through to Ipsos Mori style survey data analysis. So that is massive. That is a multi-billion pound industry and everybody's got to pick their niche. Now for me and Keith, that didn't have any kind of professional background and understanding about it. We've got no passion for a survey building. We were just trying to build something. We've got to decide, well, where are we? Are we at the really simple end? In which case it's free or you've got to run ads against it or you need to have mm. a massive multi-million pound market of users in order to capture some value out of that? Or are we going to invest in an enormous amount of professional competency to understand about how what proper uh, market researchers need to build quantitative um, and qualitative style research tools? Where the hell are we in, in, in all of this? And, and so that's, if I'm understanding this right, where you're getting to here is that's even just in the survey side of things, never mind the user experience, the design, exactly. the SEO, the marketing, the branding, the advertising, the customer service. You're just talking about specializing inside of the survey market space, yeah. which is huge in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's when you look at businesses like that or products like that, it, I, why does anyone start a business at this point when you think of it that way? Well, yeah, I mean, that's it. Like, And so it's competitive. At the time, there was yeah. SurveyMonkey. There was also SurveyGizmo. There was Wufu. There was yeah. JotForm. It was just too much. And I thought, well, mm. we could build a decent product. But unless we, and I was working full time, there's other stuff going on, of course, like making a living. So the choice of bootstrapping meant that if we had taken what we had built, and if we'd even understood this, 
going to a VC or some kind of investment fund to say, right, well, we need some money and we're going to hire some people and this is the business plan and we see the opportunity, let's go for it. I have no doubt that it would have been a successful product and we could have built a successful business around it. But the thing is that we had no competence in understanding that. So it's like, well, I can see, like, we're, at the end of the day, entrepreneurs bet on themselves. So you've got to understand your own skills, what you can achieve. Why jump into an ocean that's swirling around with sharks when you just don't you just don't come prepared for the party like you're bringing I don't I can't think of any, the analogy but you know my point like we sort of yeah. recognize in ourselves like we can't we just can't do this we have to and it doesn't matter that we've gone on about it to our friends and family and we've spent burnt through holidays thinking about it and writing stuff and he's been doing it he's been doing his day job and then he's been writing it in the evenings and I've been trialing it in my job and everybody else uses it and everybody thinks it's great because at the end of the day, it's our lives. And can, are we going to are we going to back our time for something which I just don't see a I don't see a route through where we can we can win. And was Keith with you at this party? Yeah, it was on the bus. So we, we lived in South London and we were in a party in North London and it was just on the bus on the way back. And I just said, I just don't think we can do it. We're not doing it. I think we need to close this down. This was in 2000, I said 2004, I think it was 2003. I said, I just don't think, I just don't think we should do this. And he agreed. We just looked at Wufu. We just looked at Wufu on the bus, whatever that bus is that goes from north to south. That and I just I think, I thought, we can't compete with this. We've just done two, or, two years of development on this. I don't think we can compete with it. It It is a phenomenal acknowledgement and self-awareness that, that an entrepreneur and co-founder can look at themselves, their own skills, the business that they've built or the product they've built, and then throw it away. That is a gift that I wish I had in my younger years because it is so invaluable. I, let me tell you, I can define my career over the last 20 years by the shit that I should have said no to. Yeah. And I it. didn't. And yeah. it's a magic thing that you're telling now because it is a skill that you need to refine. It's a muscle you have to exercise. Yeah, I think that probably the sad truth about me and Keith is that we've already experienced huge amounts of other kinds of failures. It's just like, it didn't surprise us to think, okay, this is, we're like, we're only going to place a bet on something where we know we can Where you win. really know. Yeah, yeah. where well, we know. And so, and that, and I do, to be honest, Nick, I do read sometimes stories of people in their 20s who are, ba they are basically being told by the industry, they're being told by people on LinkedIn, they're, by, they're, they're being told by the accelerators and the, the, uh, the mentors and all the rest of it, just to keep going and believe in yourself. And frankly, sometimes it is not just a question of believing in yourself, it's a question of knowing yourself and also truly understanding what your priorities are. And so I don't personally think it's worth, and I've said this many times, it is not worth sacrificing your personal life and your mental health for the sake of a dream that I don't think people are even able to explain to you meaningfully. Because the people that are really offering you the big bucks kind of exit, those guys are, they are working an entirely different business model to whatever business it is that you are trying to get going. And in fact, actually, our mutual friend, Ram Fishkin, lost and founder, he's got a chapter, I think it's like first couple of chapters in, which just could not explain it better, the economics of external VC finance. And what it expresses is that you have a, let's say you have, yeah, you have a survey building tool or something, and you've got a business model around that, but you are one egg in a distributed basket of eggs that they've got, and you represent an entirely different business model where your failure really doesn't matter to them because you're part of the spread bet.
So this idea that somebody's going to give you money and get you going and make you feel like you can do it is because their mm. objective is to try to get 10 people on that race. And let's hope one of them essentially races ahead at an exponential rate of growth, which is going to pay for everybody else's failure. And the thing that is so damaging about it is that your capacity to actually succeed in the product business space that you've chosen is actively harmed by a inappropriate intervention by external finance or investors who then send you down a path because they're trying to accelerate your growth, which in fact, if you didn't have, like me and Keith, you might it might just fizzle out and you think, okay, that's fizzling out. I can't see a way to inject business into this but you haven't you have you kind of hasn't haven't lost anything either like me and Keith are on the bus going home from a party suddenly realizing we're not gonna we can't get anything from this but it's not like oh shit mm. we've taken on a million pounds and we've been in tech crunch and we've been part of the accelerated journey and everybody thinks we're going to yeah. be heading to silicon valley and so, so like no we built a product we put our huge amount of effort into it we really cared we ended up with two users and we can't scale it and we can't get customers from it unless and it's okay we... to walk away and that's fine and it's that's okay fine yeah it's okay we, and it's okay yeah it's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing that you've come to and i couldn't agree more and yes there are absolutely businesses that need vc funding i have no that go for it to be the unicorn but 90% of people starting businesses don't need VC funding. What they need is customers. And if you don't have yeah. customers, you don't have a product. And that's okay to admit. And I love that you and Keith were just sitting on a bus and walked away from this business. That is incredible. Yeah. And you remind me of um, a story of my own. When I was 20, I raised my first angel funding, which was like 25,000 pounds. And I had the same recognition that, holy crap, I'm building a social network because Facebook wasn't, it was around 2003, four. Facebook wasn't in South Africa yet. I'm building a social network, but I don't have any design skills. I'm not a designer. I'm not a good developer, so I can't really build this code. And my CTO is good enough as a developer, but can't do anything else, marketing, sale. So I gave the money back. We literally, three days later, gave the VC their money back for the same reason that, yeah. you know what, it's okay to fail. It's okay to not get yourself in a financial hole. Yeah, absolutely. You're, sometimes your day job is a gift. It's, it's because it's your it's the hours of the day that you spend and you don't want to break your back on something that is not going to be worth it. So you guys then you walked away from that. And then I imagine you went home and started just carrying on with your lives without this extra side hustle at night. And then you built another product. Yeah, we did. Several more, actually. And are you guys married at this point? Were you married before you started working together? We got married in 2002. In fact, it's our 20th wedding ah. anniversary this year. Amazing. So yeah, we would have Congrats. been. We would have been. Um, we would have been married at that point. Yeah, no, I like the guy. I'm not like it doesn't, he doesn't have to like build a fantastic <laughs> okay. software thing. It was like it was <laughs> yeah. one of those like we love taking our like we he, Keith in technology and and at the time me in politics. We love our careers. We love what we're doing. So like you can enjoy like again like why do something like if you said if you're not a good designer and you're not a brilliant developer then don't throw yourself into something which is actually doesn't give you any satisfaction. Like find the things that you're good at and then mm. do really well and double down on what you're really good at. And I think that's a more sure course to success so that's so 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 me and Keith are we enjoy doing projects together so another mm. significant product that was never the case but I, I thought it was a great little tool was when as newlyweds and going around trying to buy a house together we Keith bought a tool called price built a tool called price per square foot which I just loved it was a funny little tool that when you're looking at houses you take the 
the dimensions of every room and then you put it in and it would give you a comparator so you could see the price per square foot i'm sure there's tools like this exist now but you could see the price mm. per square foot across any different building and it would allow you to if you like lo- um understand and how they've priced out location so if we saw like a little canal cottage and it's right next to the canal it's absolutely beautiful but i remember it was at the time like 280 pounds per square foot whereas your average price for houses in that area were 120 pounds per square foot you're like well okay i understand it's near a a canal but is it really should be should it be twice the price in terms of acreage and i know that there are places like hong kong and singapore where price per square foot is a you know it's a much more common thing but in britain still Mm. we still get that we still get tricked by they put a a division in in between one big room and they make it two bedrooms and they go oh it's it's a two-bedroom house (laughs) not really it's still 10 foot by 15 foot sorry and so um we did that and so we had so so we kind of carried on pootling around building those tools but they never really got off the ground they were just products that we built and i'm interested on that point when you say they're just products you built uh, let's say this particular one, price per square foot. Did you actively go out and market it to anybody or did you just build it and put it out in the world and hope that it gained traction? Like, yes, were you that's, actively that's trying it. to build it? Yeah, I mean, if, if um, again, sort of referencing Rand's book again, like if if I'd known anything about SEO, if I'd known anything about the idea of like how, so I didn't know anything about marketing in marketing something on the web. So having it, Maybe at the time, retrospectively, I could have done more to sort of promote usage. But these these were products that were accessible on the web, but they didn't mm. have the kind of login, create account stuff. Oh, well, Tickboxer did, but not PPSF. Keith didn't really ever want to properly push it out there because he said that if he did, this is a classic developer line, basically people would find bugs and then he'd have to support the bugs. He didn't want to. So it's just like, oh, okay, well. That's beautiful. That is so <laughs> okay, what is the point then? Why are we doing this? So you just build the web applications for me because once we bought a house and we don't need it anymore. And sure enough, like at the end of the day, then we did. Oh, I'd forgotten about this one. This was an absolute classic. Yeah, we did. He wanted to do. He wanted to. You see, in two thousand and eight, the iPhone came out. Yeah, and it was just like and my life literally changed. It was a kind of everything changed. Like I can see my email on my phone. It's amazing. So it's been a love affair ever since with the iPhone, hasn't it? It's just like, it's just been, you know, incredible. So Keith wanted to build a iOS app. And uh, and this is pre-WhatsApp. This is pre-everything that we now understand you can do uh, with a networked sort of mobile phone system. He built an app called I Fall In Love. And it was geolocating two phones and then connecting it via the server. And then, so it would be for a couple. And then if you ran the app, you would get a sort of a beating heart when it was close, when the two phones were close to each other. And then if you got on a train and went off somewhere, your phone, your app, the heart would get smaller and smaller. And eventually it would sort of fall down to the bottom of the screen because it was unhappy. That is that is heartbreaking. And you, I know, and you could tap on it and you could send your lover messages. And so they, they would see a little sparkle come up and that would be a message. And you could piss about doing that. And But then also, even more painfully, Nick, if you sp- broke up with your lover, in order to delete the app, you needed to shake the phone and kind of stab away <laughs> at the heart until it broke. That is fantastic. That, I know. That so is fantastic. So this is the first time we had done any kind of 
deliberate attempt to try to make some money from this because he built it. Mm. It was revolutionary. This idea that you could send your lover messages via your phone app. Now and it's location based. We completely take it for granted, but it's like, no, this is totally Mm. really interesting stuff he'd done here. And so it was for Valentine's Day. And I can't remember when this was. It must have been something like 2010. We did a whole promotion for Valentine's Day. So we did PR, we did media. It was on the iPhone, it was on the Apple Store. We were so convinced that this was just like, it, it, we did, we got a review for, we got a review from the Washington or the LA Times. We got a review from the Guardian. I think we like, we actually did get some PR. Oh, wow. And we just thought people would be logging into the App Store and looking for Valentine's Day style apps and they mm. buy something from us. Anyway, so the day came and we probably spent about, I don't know, 1500 quid on, we had a researcher that was going around doing all of the emailing and the press release and stuff. But this is to do with, this is explained by lack of knowledge or awareness about viral PR and, and SEO. Mm. So we thought it was like press getting a press release and sending a press release to journalists as if somehow that is the thing that, lets you grow. Anyway, on the day, on Valentine's Day, I Fall In Love was released. And I think we got like one upgrade. We, I think we made 48p. Yeah, because people don't pay for apps as much as you want them to. They don't. They'd rather they don't. pay for a cup of coffee. They don't. It's wild. But also, I think we failed. We failed on multiple levels. But I think we failed particularly in, not, in really assuming that we knew what people wanted. Like, I mean, you're mm. right now. We also know they don't pay for apps. But you know, we just assume that our ideas are the best. And you do need that yeah. kind of, you do need a sort of fairly confident, brazen attitude. You do. But equally, though, there's no, you have to talk to people and say, if I, if we built this, would you use it? And, f- and we did get some people using it. Like we, in the end, we had a couple of thousand people using it. But I think that was the free version or we didn't, we stopped charging for it. I can't remember. We've never made any money from it. Developing a product is different from a business or a company. And a product has to mean something to somebody. You have to be doing something that people want. And if you build, it doesn't matter how great you've built it or whatever else. If your product ultimately isn't something that people want, it's it will fail. It will fail. And so we did, I think that was kind of Keith's point about price per square foot, which is that we just built it primarily for the things that we wanted to do. And that's always mm. the origin story. Everybody like, well, I was sitting in a cafe and I suddenly tripped over something and I realized cafes need more signs or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Everybody's got these origin stories. And at the end of the day, if it was just a question of like, I had a personal experience and then I built an entire multi-billion pound business around it, well, then you're a very unique and bizarre person. Most of the time, what you actually have to do is validate whether your personal experience is the same as a hundred other people's personal experiences and whether together you'd actually be interested in using the same product. Yes, what's big in your world is not big in the world most of the time. And even today, just to even layer onto that, the number of people who have pitched me to invest in their businesses who haven't done research that there is a solution to their problem already is staggering. Because the chances are in 2022, if you're trying to build an app for something, the app has been built. There is already somebody who's built and probably a better version than the one you've built. So what I wanted to ask you about is... You seem to have a very healthy relationship with building stuff, not gaining traction and throwing that stuff out. I'm interested in 
how? Like, how does your brain cope with that? Because I'm the same, but I don't really think other people are like this. I think most of the people I coach, they are attached and married yeah. to their idea to their detriment. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I can, I actually can help characterize, I think, yeah. some of the, the danger signs of that. Which is that, and I mean, I can be very critical and judgmental about lots of people. And I'm not trying to claim that I'm a very, I'm a massively successful person. I think there's plenty of people out there that could have taken the products that we built and made much more out of them than, than we did. So in a way, I'm not apologizing for sacrificing the all out pursuit of optimized growth and money for something mm. else. It's just that whatever that other stuff is, is nothing to do with anybody else's my personal choices. And again, mm. that explains why we didn't want to work with VCs and angel investors and whoever else, because it would mean we'd have to sacrifice our own ability to choose whether it was, I mean, and there is in what's it called the innovators dilemma, the being rich versus being king. And that's, that is the point, which is do you either control everything about your life, but you do have a risk of not making enough money or do you go down the yeah. path of a lot of you know success, successful entrepreneurs have done and then you're pooling what you're doing with other people and you basically make more money so fair enough mm. that's that, so i'm not trying to say this is your my advice is your path to, to success and riches because it might not sure. be i think that the mistake that people or not this is my judgmental part coming i think it's <laughs> you, can judgy. So, so, you can be judgy you can be judgy some people might not think this is a mistake i am essentially a bit cynical about our in uh, our industry's ability or tendency to characterize the products that we build with something to do with the personal self-esteem of the founder. And by that, I mean this idea that the founders of Slack are deeply passionate about work-based chat products or the Airbnb guys are just deeply passionate about the idea that it's a right of every first world traveling citizen to go around and have a, a really nice place to stay accessible via an app. This is, I just think this is a sort of a reinvention of what businesses are, have always been about, which is identifying services that people want, putting in the investment to produce it so that they can buy it at a cheaper um, rate than building it themselves and then making a profit from that. And that is just a business. And you go around any mm. small town, like we live in Bedford in the United Kingdom, and there are m hundreds of people who create decent businesses all the time in, in, in towns and cities where they're just, they're not, they don't have any of this kind of sort of false um, bravado. Well, yes. And, and it's that well, well, narrative, right? That founders have to construct that, oh, the Airbnb guys are trying to solve a common. No, no, no. They needed money. So they put a mattress on their bed and then it worked. So then they yeah, bought into exactly. that narrative that they constructed. Right. It didn't exist yeah. pre that. They didn't come up with this idea because they were passionate about disrupting the hotel industry. Yeah. That's a lie. And I also think it's a lie to, that's a lie to say that to people who work for you as well. So even though you can book me. We understand scheduling extremely well. We can get very nerdy about the details around calendar sharing or time zones. We also care huge amounts about the customer experience and the, mm. the things that customers want. So we've, we have over 20,000 customers like we, and we have a million people and you can book me. So we have 
huge number of people who care that our product that we have built for them works and therefore we care enormously about our product but at the end of the day we're in business to make money we're not centered around online scheduling as a thing and i just don't pretend that. that i don't pretend yeah. that we are and that's probably because and i say this to people who work for us you could have been working for a survey building company you could have been working for a property investment site company with price per square foot because at the end of the day me and keith have focused on problems and we've tried to solve them or we can get very passionate about solving problems and doing mm. a good job. So we get passionate about things like, are we doing our best work? Are we using our time efficiently? Are we producing value for people? Is it satisfying to take money from a customer because you've, you've given them a good product? It wouldn't be satisfying to me, even if I was, let's say, hugely passionate about gardening, but I had a, basically a bit of a shit gardening business and that people came and my, my plants were died. It doesn't matter how much I personally love gardening. If the business wasn't good, then... You'll still um, feel shit. Oh, yes. So, y y yes, you do need a passion for what you're doing, but our passion... I know this sounds really corny and this sounds like a line, but it's true. Our passion is to serve customers, to do really well, to basically do our best work whilst we serve customers and to produce a product that people want. And if we needed to pivot to, to a different product, that's what we'll do. And in fact, mm. we have multiple scheduling tools. We've built them and we've closed them down. We built them because you can book me is one type, a bit like online scheduling. There's a very wide range of scheduling problems that need to be solved. So we have another tool called When Is Good that does what they call consensus scheduling. We, we had a tool called Sign Up Sheet, which did courses and classes because you can, but we didn't quite do courses and classes, repeat bookings over time. So uh, we had loads of these kind of products. And at the end of the day, if we can't invest in it to make it the best it can be, it's been retired or we've had to just let it go on its own sort of two legs. But that so I'm very just suspicious of people who think that their life's mission is invested in this one product that they've built. And they're trying to pretend to everybody because the logic is, I think you should buy this product from me because I have personally sacrificed like a religion I, my faith in this product is so great because I care so much about this topic. Mm. That's why you should buy the product from me. Whereas I think, no, I think you should buy, you can book me because it's a really good scheduling tool. The thing that I want to comment on that I think you've so brilliantly illustrated is something that is close to me too, that entrepreneurs need to figure out how to decouple their self-worth from the thing that they're building. Because when that thing you're building fails, you will feel like a failure if you haven't yes, done that. I agree. And what's so brutal about this is nobody teaches you this. Nobody teaches yeah. you that, yes, you can work hard on solving a problem. And if you can't solve that problem, it's okay to yeah. acknowledge that you aren't a failure, but that thing failed. And you can yeah. build something else. That's why yeah. I'm so I'm enamored with the stories that you're telling because you and Keith seem to have figured out how to re respect the work you do and not be judged by the work you do. Because... You failed. You move on. You build something else. That's cool. And this works. Well, I now mean, we're going to hire people. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a failure, I suppose. I mean, yeah, I, you'd call I, it like, a I, I mean, I guess you're, this is your the topic of your show is yeah, what is I wouldn't even know how to describe a, a working definition of failure because you can trick yourself. And again, Peldi from Balsamic will say mm. this that he turns everything into a learning opportunity so he can never fail because he says that as long as he's learned along the way then you you can count that as a success so what would be a failure I mean I suppose for me failure is when you've promised a lot of stuff everybody's believed in you and then you've let a lot of people down I mean I think a failure would be probably more of an ethical thing where you've essentially mm. let people down because you've lied to them
and you've borrowed money from them and you can't pay it back and you've you've probably become some, somebody that you didn't want to be because of this yeah. idea that um, you're going to get somewhere which is going to compensate that means justify the ends i would say something which is sort of a deep moral failure moral problem would be a failure i think mm. things in business where you're working hard you've been honest with what you're trying to achieve people have been working with you they understand the parameters um, and the product itself in the end doesn't work out um that's not a failure that is just a prop that's just one of the challenges of building businesses and it happens all the time yeah. and i think if we end up thinking that there's a sort of you've got a group of here of winners and they're all brilliant because they just never made mistakes and then everybody down here that didn't become it are failures where we're not being fair on anybody because as i said classically history is written by the winners so you can't believe the winners up here because they never tell the truth they never say all the bullshit that they had to actually go through and there's been plenty yeah. of times when it's been very hard for us even when our business was up and running it's still very tough and then the losers by definition haven't succeeded so then they're failures and it's like no that cannot be the case and you know and they don't get to tell their story because they're the losers well, sometimes people decide not to do businesses all the time because they decide to move yeah. on and do something different. Yeah. And you they know, don't you, speak you about need that. to have permission. And actually, mm. a decent business, you should be able to, if you run a decent business, somebody else might want to buy it from you. You could move on, you can wind it down. If it served the purposes that you set it up for, it doesn't have to be. We, nobody, it didn't used to be the case that running a business mm. meant that unless you suddenly become Elon Musk, you are a failure. And you meet them in conferences that you and I go to. You meet people who mm -hmm. have multi-million pound businesses who are very happy with what they do and they maybe they travel the world or maybe they're at home with their family and they take care of the people who work for them and they have a good set of customers and they make a decent wage. And they're not making yep. a big fuss about anything and they're not trying to And you've never themselves. heard of them. And you've never heard of them and they're just they're, they're just running decent, profitable businesses. And I would argue that's most of entrepreneurship around the world. That is probably what most entrepreneurs, statistically, most entrepreneurs just run sustainable businesses. Yeah. It's the very cele celebrated, quote unquote, few that we look at on TechCrunch and all these other crappy websites that trick us into believing it's a billion dollars or nothing, that we then go, oh, that's what building a business is. But when you started TechBox and when I started my first businesses, that wasn't the definition of success. The definition of success was build a sustainable, profitable business. Yeah. And I'm glad that that you're talking about going back to that. And I want to make an observation that I think uh, you and I share a foundational um, building block of our worldviews that failure is not an end point, it's a through point. And yeah. what I'd like to tell yeah. a lot of my coaching clients is I've never met a successful person who has avoided failure towards their success. It's impossible. You cannot avoid failure if you're going to be successful. You have to bake in failure to your successes. So you can make mistakes and we've made loads of mistakes. But I can, I think I can say, I've probably made the same mistake twice, but I don't think I've made the same mistake three times. Because you can make a mistake and you can believe that it's because of, it was because of some other factor that it wasn't. Then you make the same mistake twice and you realize it's a pattern and the same flags came up twice. Um, so it's fairly unforgivable to make a mistake three times. So the failure is that you... You, you, if if you've made mistakes, and we have, I mean, we have definitely made mistakes where we've lost money, where we've let people down, and we've lost money, and that's obviously very painful. But at the same time, it would be unforgivable if that's the way we decided to make run the business completely. And I think that's again, it comes back to ethics. There are some businesses who bake into their business model burning people out. 
So you can bring people on, you can give them an enormous story about why it's amazing to work for you. You can pay them a low wage. You can incentivize them to work as hard as you possibly can. They burn out after two years and then they go and they don't understand why you didn't want to basically give them yeah. more until you realize. And I have a friend recently who, who, who said this to me because she just handed in her notice because she was talking to me about it. And I was saying, I think that's their business model. I think they're basic. And they, this is not a software company. This is an entirely different context. Ad agencies, are, advertising agencies right, have this exact just, model. Who would do it. Yeah. And, who will say, and consultancies of, uh, often yeah. as well. So we're, we're not interested in your long-term worth mm. inside this company. Our business model is about paying you half the market rate, burn you out after two years, and we still save money on what you're doing. Yeah. Now, that's again, like, it depends what kind of business you want to be in. There are plenty of people who run businesses like that, who make plenty of money, who don't give a shit. And again, that's not me. That's not the business I'm yeah. running. So I have to be yeah. true to the, to, to the kind of business I want to run yeah. alongside the kind of person I want to be. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So I want to shift quickly towards uh, you can book me and ask, what was the point at which you knew this is something we should double down on? We're not walking away from this one. These are the metrics that are working. It's time to move forward. So, well, because, I mean, if I could characterize Tipboxer as a tool where we had no customers and um, we had no users, so we had nobody use. well, we had two users, but no certainly no customers. Fast forward to 2007, so we did start building another tool. So When Is Good became our, our next major tool that we wanted to bring to the market. And that definitely was a lot more of a investment for me and Keith because we'd kind of done Tickboxer and we'd done all these other little funny little tools so we did know a lot more about it and then we built When Is Good which is a consensus scheduling tool so it's a tool that finds a time for a group of people to meet and, and it grew really fast so we actually ended up having hundreds of thousands of people using When Is Good but still no customers so you think okay now we know what it feels like to have a tool with loads of users but not customers and customers don't like in the way that people don't pay for apps people don't pay for these kind of you know people who go on the web to get there i mean i've got a host of them my my currency calculator my percentage calculator my weather forecast app everybody's going onto the web onto browsers to get their apps to give them functionality mm -hmm. when is good is a bit like that they go to when is good they set up events they send a link around they get the time when people can meet they wouldn't dream of paying for it and so, and I think at the time we didn't really understand the difference between a consumer app and a business app. Um, and so we were noticing with when is good. I mean, we used to think we had that phrase of it just has to wash its own face. We just felt like, well, it's just going to have to take care of itself because we've got other things on and we're not borrowing money to invest in it. It's got to do. But we did learn the lesson from Tickboxer that when is good is a very self-contained little product. It doesn't have a lot of complications about it. It does what it says mm. on the tin. So in that sense, we learned. And then with um, the users, it grew like Bilio, but we just didn't ever grow the revenue. But and you still have a full-time job at this point. I, I was working in politics <sighs> at the time. Wild, so, yeah. So we were, and Keith was still doing contracting. So we were okay. still doing other stuff. I mean, and we weren't really, we didn't have like major plans for when it's good. We thought that it was, I mean, we honestly, we just thought we could build it. It will grow really fast. We could sell it for a million quid, buy a house. That, that was, it wasn't like, we're going to be entrepreneurs and we're going, to, we're going to go live in California. It was like, can we build something that could grow enough of an audience that we could not get, avoid getting a mortgage? But we weren't expecting to give up our full-time jobs for, for it. And then what happened was we saw when is good be used. And this is what happens when with product 
pivoting. Like if you build lots and lots of products and you stop being obsessed about one product that you've built, you start to understand the world of it and you don't get pressures about it. So some people mm. get very annoyed when people don't use their product the way it should be used. And it's like, no, that's telling you something. Like maybe you've built a product that other people have told you what it should re really be for. Listen to that mm. because mm. they know more than you do. And really, I think that I think especially in Britain, we we were always very sniffy and snobby about the American fast food chain language of the customer is always right. Mm. And we were a bit like, oh, no, I think at that time, 20, 30 years ago, the 1980s, you'd go into a cafe in, in Britain, they wouldn't give a shit what you wanted, or they wouldn't give a shit what you thought. <laughs> They'd be just like, yeah. there's just a very unfriendly service in a lot yeah. of companies, in a lot of service based hospitality industries. Whereas when you actually, you look at the badge that says, have a nice day. And it says like, I'm Bridget, how can I help you today? Have a nice day. The customer's always right. Even though mm. it feels very naff, having now run a company for 10 years and have over 20,000 customers, I really truly understand what that mantra is about. Because at the mm. end of the day, you can't argue with your customers. You can't argue with what people want to use your tool for. They are the ones paying you and you need to listen to them. And at the end of the day, they're paying your, your wages. And it's it, easy it, for them to stop paying you. Oh, yeah. But and, and I think also it's egotistical and slightly unattractive. The idea that you're mm. some sort of profit. Of, mm. Yeah, exactly. Or, or you've got some kind of higher opinion. I mean, you, if you, you're Steve Jobs, maybe. But basically speaking, you've got to listen to what people say they want. So yeah. when it's good, people, we had this grid, which was the consensus scheduling grid. And um, people were using it to try to display their availability. And they were saying, well, this is when I'm free. You can find a time in the slots. So we could see that this was these were businesses who were using the wow. When is Good grids for a booking page. Mm. And that's where Keith, around 2011, he said, OK, well, I could probably integrate a grid like a When is Good style grid with Google Calendar. And that's and then within that first month, we'd had the experience. This is like you make you kind of you fail, but then you learn. So up until this point, you could say everything we had done is R&D. We knew that we were going to charge up front from the very beginning, we were going to focus on customers, we we're going to focus on what they wanted. And um, I think we sort of made more from customers, not a huge amount, like we're talking about 500 pounds here, but we made more in the first month of You Can Book Me than we'd made in the previous six months of When It's Good. So it, yeah, it didn't take kind of genius entrepreneurship to realize mm. it, but, but on the other hand though, I mean, from then that story of building You Can Book Me was very different and it was exponential growth and it was a lot of, definitely a lot of hard lessons that we then had to learn because we were stopping, we weren't building a product anymore. We were building a business and a company, which are two separate things. But what I would say though, is that I remember even at the darkest hours of You Can Book Me when it was really hard and really stressful and we wanted to throw everything into the sea. I couldn't say, oh, I hate my job because I've just been asked to do this and it's a shit job and I don't want to do it. It's like, well, we've been doing this now for a good 10 years. We started with Tickboxer. We built PPSF. We built I Fall in Love. We built When Is Good. We asked for this. We can't, we have nobody to blame but ourselves because somehow we kept building products that, that were, didn't take off. And as soon as we built a product that did take off, we now we didn't prepare in some ways for what yeah. would happen if a product actually did take off. That leads me to an, a question that it, I've been thinking about since you mentioned that you started your career or you were in a career in politics. What was the transition like from politics to product-led CEO? 
Well, so interestingly, although I've had to learn my understanding of business and the software industry, I've obviously had to learn on the job. And there's lots Mm. of things about that that I realized, you know, if I went back into being a second time entrepreneur, let's say if we you know, sold the business and then decided as many people do, oh, I want to do it again. And if I just did the whole thing again, I would be so much better doing it a second time around than doing it the first time around. So there was a lot of innocence and naivety and mistakes that I made early on. There was a lot of satisfaction because in politics, again, this is going to sound like a cheesy line, but I promise you it's sincere. In politics, you work at a very meta level. You're constantly saying, oh, look, guys, look, there's 650 of us. I wasn't an MP, but I worked for MPs. 650 MPs. They're the ones running the country and or essentially holding the government to account. And they can float around. And we just have to make an approximation of whether we trust them or not. We have to essentially, you know, balance up between these three or four people that we have a choice of and decide which one of them is lying the least. Which one of them is the least worst option? Which one of them is saying things that vaguely associate the the things that I care about? And then we pick that person to vote for. And then they then go off and they approximate as well. So politics is entirely about sort of trust us and approximate and we'll deliver later. And it's it's an age old story and we're all used to it and it's all exhausting. It goes badly wrong in many situations, not least currently across Europe. There are huge examples of what you could call product failure in the political systems of different countries. So it can be very disheartening because you can work in politics for years and never really see results. Whereas the thing that I really enjoyed when I moved to You Can Book Me is that you've got this relationship with customers. Even if you've got only five customers, if you build what they want, you can get this immediate sense of satisfaction that you've done a good job. So I always used to think of it as a kind of a switch to micro delivery, that every day with You Can Book Me, we can actually roll something out, which we know people want that's fixed a problem for them. And you build that over time, you you actually end up with a very satisfying experience, even if you're not doing anything that's sort of super exciting or, or glamorous most of the time, the sum total of what you do with running a company like You Can Book Me gives you huge amounts of satisfaction because you've delivered from millions of people. I mean, 1.5 million people use You Can Book Me to book every month. So, you know, we're, we're, that is our output is bookers. Bookings mm. are happening all the time. Whereas with politics, I don't know whether you ever get a sense of satisfaction because it's never it's never done and the problems yeah. are never solved and everybody's always <laughs> arguing all the time. And this, it's full of very incompetent people. So the other thing I would yeah. say is being the boss of my company has meant that I end up having a huge influence over who we hire and who we work with and what we do. So I work with, I mean, I work with some of the best people I've ever worked with in my entire career. I have not just some, the best people I've ever worked with in in my entire professional career are the people who work Mm. at You Can Book Me. They are exceptionally professional and qualified and competent people. And frankly, even though there was obviously a handful of those people in politics and I never got that satisfaction of working with a team that is building something together and that can deliver deliver something tangible in politics it's it's so much more murky than that and that is the joy of being an entrepreneur is actually your company is a dictatorship and you get to choose who you work for yeah to an extent absolutely I mean you're not in a, a democracy like the UK so final couple of questions um you've mentioned how how many people use you can book me and 
the question that keeps popping into my head is you're in a very competitive space with mm-hmm. Calendly and Vite and all the others that have popped into the space in the last few years. What is your view on competition? Because you've got a great sustainable business that's profitable and growing at a good rate and you don't seem stressed and you don't seem worried about competition. So how do you deal with all these other players in the market? Well, I think it comes back down to, again, very similar instincts that we talked about at the beginning, which is what are you in business for? What are your motivations and what's going to make you happy? So if my motivation was to be the best, to to come out on top, to win the world, then I'd be extremely worried about competition and I'd be going to bed every night with that kind of sick feeling in my stomach that we were going to fail because Calendly is going to win or whatever. But I mean, I'm not particularly Buddhist about this, but at the same time, you've got to have a certain sort of balance in your life about what's important. And at the end of the day, online scheduling tool, whether it's Calendly or any of the other ones you've mentioned or all the other competitors we have, like if my if I went to bed every night thinking that my life's worth is invested in whether they've got a feature that we haven't got, we need to build it tomorrow. Well, I basically have bigger problems than the problems of competition. So on a personal level, I just refuse to be worried about it. I just refuse because my our success inside You Can Book Me is relying on me and Keith making good decisions at a strategic level. And as I said, this incredible team that work for the company delivering their best work. And if we do that, we are going to do really well. And we might not be heading to unicorn status anytime soon, but I don't, I mean, we literally, the most people who join us don't, have worked for companies that are like that and they don't want to work for a company that is hell for leather to deliver growth because as I said that is not an internal business plan for that product that you're working on that's a business Mm -hmm. plan driven by shareholders and private investors and IPO type people and and LPs Mm -hmm. that's that if you work for a company that's business plan is an IPO then it's got nothing to do with the product that you're working on so you are constantly being told, don't worry about that, worry about this instead. Whereas the people inside You Can Book Me, I have, I just say one thing to them, which is that you work for about 22,000 people and you, you build what they want. That is what you are doing here. And you have to, yeah. we have to stay in business and we have to be profitable because that's what me and Keith want as founders. But also it's what pays you guys the wages and what gets everything going. And really, we have to take care of our own world and make that as best as we possibly can. We've always thought like that. And mm-hmm. as a result, we've gone from very like a couple of customers and 500 pounds um, or dollars a month to we're now five, we're post 5 million ARR dollars, 5 million um, dollars ARR. So we're, we're sort of, we've grown, we have grown, mm. but we've grown in a way that is that growing and revenue is the really lovely consequence of investing in the right things in the first place and not worrying that if other people have a different business model and they're doing something different, that's good for them too. That's great for them. And I hope they enjoy their jobs and I hope they are feeling satisfaction for what they are producing. It's not what we're building. And I think the world is big enough for all of us. And I think if you get too bogged down in thinking that your success relies on somehow beating the competition, you've kind of already lost because you're then being led entirely by what is happening externally. And you need to focus on internally what you can do to achieve what you want. What a healthy and sane way to approach business. And I don't feel like I could even end on a better question. So in closing, why don't you please tell everybody where they can find you, where they can follow you and where they can head to buy from you in the world? Okay, so I've actually severely 
closed down all of my social media profiles, which is a different topic, but you can find me on LinkedIn. So I am on LinkedIn. It's lovely to say hi and interact with people on LinkedIn. I quite like that, that, that platform. You can email me, bridget at youcanbook.me. I'm pretty good at email as well. And also our actual website, youcanbook.me, is, is, is available for anybody who wants a free scheduling tool or indeed recommend it to their teams and uh, departments who, or starting up who want a, a team-based scheduling tool. Bridget, amazing. Thank you for having such a sane approach to entrepreneurship. And I'm really happy to say that for you and you can book me, it's not over. No, it's not.